This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. This is part two of a two-part series. If you haven't listened to part one, go back to last week's episode and start there. That is where I explain these episodes, where they came from and all that, and I won't repeat it here. So as a reminder, though, I basically have a three-part argument to answer the question, why was this stuff so popular? Why, when Left Behind came around in the 90s, did it blow up so massively that Everybody basically who grew up more or less evangelical in America in the 90s knows about this theology, worried about being raptured or not being raptured. Why, why do, you know, how did it become such a zeitgeist? So the three-part argument. Number one, the type of people who did the initial uh, evangelism that kicked off the Jesus movement of the 1970s were themselves basically fundamentalists. Number two, there was enough stuff going on in the world in the 70s that it seemed plausible that the world was ending anytime soon. And number three, which we will now get to, by the time Left Behind comes around, it is the Jesus Jesus movement generation that had the power, that had the pulpits, and that controlled you know, and not, not necessarily in a negative way, but they controlled the Christian media companies and all of that stuff, the publishing houses, the distribution, the marketing uh, apparatus of the evangelical subculture. So that's the third bit, and that's where we're going to start today. However, that's not the only thing we're going to hear from. Uh, we are going to be hearing from all four interviewees from last week, Dave, Sally, Danny, and Steve. Um, and then three other things. Uh, First of all, we're going to hear how a straightforward and literal reading of the Bible has always been popular in America, and that this way of viewing prophecy actually serves as an argument for reading the Bible that way. So we might normally think of it as, 
well, if you read the Bible this way, then you will get this prophecy, this view of prophecy. But actually, I think that maybe the causality goes the other way, that there are multiple ways of reading prophecy, but this particular way of reading prophecy allows one to have a simple, a simple uh, kind of naive uh, view of the text as just, yeah, it's just right there, you just read it, and that's good. And that is always popular in America, especially in more low church environments. Second, we're going to hear where all four of my guests are today with this kind of thinking. And then third, I wondered how connected Sally's experience, if you remember from last week, she grew up in this very fundamentalist context. So she was born into the kind of churches that spawned the Jesus movement. And since she grew up in it, as opposed to Dave, Danny, and Steve, who came to it as adults, I was wondering if Sally's experience mirrored that of the younger people that I interviewed in that original four-part series of End Times Anxiety. And then finally, we'll end with a, a short coda looking back at the experience of being in the Jesus movement all those years ago. All right. So here we are with the third part of the three-part argument that the generation that had the power in the evangelical subculture by the time Left Behind came out were the same people who basically were do, did the Jesus movement and became the kind of mainstream evangelicals. So we're going to start with the end of that hippie commune era as told through Dave's personal experience of their own commune kind of phasing out and becoming just a regular church. I guess five to 10 years into it when I realized, okay, I'm going to have a wife here. I've got kids. I need to get a job. I need to earn a living. Did the commune eventually disband because of Jesus not showing up or for other reasons? You know what I <laughs> you mean? You could say that. Although we were all pretty young at the time, and as we got older, there were people getting married, having children, financial needs and that thing. And there were less and less people hitchhiking around, ending up at our commune, and less people getting saved, like the Jesus people movement sort of slowed down, less converts. You know, we tried a Bible school for a while, but it just it started to dwindle. And we were under it. We were under the guidance of our church at the time. And the new pastor said, look, we're, not, we're just we're just beating a dead horse here. Let's just close this thing down. And we were all in agreement. I had an experience in my first pastorate, which was in the late 70s, early 80s, and where I kind of came up against the idea that People would rather figure out what the tenth toe of the beast means than to walk across their street and love their neighbor. And I kind of went on a hiatus from it. This is not going to be front and center to my teaching uh, leader and, and my approach as a pastor. Now I'm verbally processing a little bit here with you as I'm oh, good. <laughs> trying to get a sense of what, how to understand this. So the reason that come 1994 – when Left Behind is released and I'm being raised in an evangelical context, the reason that that theology is still taken seriously is that the evangelical zeitgeist of the 90s is the same thing as the Jesus movement of the 70s. It's just – it's the same people, right? It's just – it's gone through some changes. It went through Reagan 80s and all that stuff. But theologically, it is still effectively a fundamentalist movement that has no problem – with that kind of a view of the text. And so it has no problem with that view of biblical prophecy. Uh, yeah, I, I would pretty much agree with all of that. 
I, I simply think those guys still had large platforms, particularly among baby boomers, who hadn't shed that theology at that time. And the Left Behind series novel, you know, dramatized that theology in a way that was sort of rekindling of that fervor. It still exists even today, although most of the major proponents of it are older boomer pastors. I mean, the guys that, that really preach that consistently is a major theme. But so um, I like you. I like your idea that uh, a big chunk of it is just a baby boomer generation that never really got rid of that belief. And they maybe if I could add, they associated that belief with like the the most on fire for God they ever were in their lives. I think and, there's a lot to that. And so it gets retold in a compelling way that becomes popular, that's easy to visualize. And it it's a kind of a nostalgic revival of faith. Something you said is is really interesting. The way you said it was by the time Left Behind comes around the 90s, it's still the same guard. There hasn't been a new generation of ministers who care about different things that are leading these big churches. But I would argue in 1971, they aren't the big pastors. It's the youth, right? So, And the baby boomers outnumber the people that had them, the greatest generation and the silent generation, right? So – what you actually have is Lake Great Planet Earth is a youth movement. Left yes. Behind is an adult movement. And now that's, they're the ones with the keys to the kingdom and the and the power. And I think that's why, you know, and so now you have a whole different phenomenon with millennial pastors and Xers and millennial pastors. and, and None of whom almost at all care about this stuff at all, right? Correct. Correct. And they go in different in these. I mean, there are multiple streams in that sort of Gen X millennial movement, but none of them have really taken up the eschatological cause as a central piece. Something that I came across in my research working on this episode is the idea that one thing that fueled Left Behind's sales, at least for a short term, was 9-11. That actually in the weeks following the September 11th attack, Left Behind book sales rose 60%. So this is something that I asked my interviewees. Did you find yourself thinking about the end times after 9-11? The 9-11 had no effect on my thinking of the end times. It was just, to me, it was just another event. Because and I remember the weekend that it happened, gosh, our church was packed. And I thought, well, these are interesting people. If some disaster happens, and all of a sudden they want to be uh, Christians. <laughs> Didn't, it was weird to me. Why, why is church so crowded this weekend? Oh, yeah. 9-11 happened the other day. I thought it was kind of weird. No, it really had no effect on me at all. It was just another thing in the battle between Christianity and non-Christians. <laughs> I think they attacked us. We're a Christian nation, and we support Israel. I guess there's a lot of reasons for 9-11, but yeah, it was just an event to me. What I remember most about that that was most disturbing to me was the de- demonization of an entire ethnicity or religion because of that. And it reminded me of the anti-Semitism maybe leading up to World War II. I was just very distraught by that hatred that came in with it. So that concludes my main argument as to why this was so successful. But there's still a lot more uh, really interesting stuff to unpack from these interviews. 
Right now, we're going to talk about how this straightforward, literal reading of the Bible has always been popular in America, and it's popular today. And this way of viewing prophecy acts as a proof that you should read the Bible that way, and that this has great benefits for people who already want to believe that. And in America specifically, it plays on a few ideas that are pretty central to our own identity. Number one, we are very individualistic, and so we'll hear from Dave how his commune was very understandably and very um, specifically anti-institution. We'll also hear from Danny about American exceptionalism and escapism, and we'll hear from Steve how this way of reading the Bible acts as a fight against the creep of secularism. We purposely, as a as a group of Christians and believers, did not want to be part of the church movement. We didn't even like to use the word church or be, we didn't really associate much with other churches. We certainly associated with Lighthouse Ranch, if you heard of that. That was a larger version of what we were doing in Eureka, California. Um, we were part of that, but we avoided denominational stuff completely. We were non-denominational, and we didn't like anything churchy at all. In fact, we despised churchiness, if I can put it that way, or churchianity. We had a very, in my opinion, we had a very, very inadequate theology of suffering. Surely we won't have to suffer like that, you know. And there was, so there was something appealing to the idea that we're going to, uh, an escapist part of this, we were going to be delivered from the worst of the suffering. And there, and I think there was never been a, to me, looking back at my own experience, I don't think anybody would have overtly said, um, we don't deserve to. It just, there was this theology that was that that's just the way it's going to be. God would never let us go through that. In fact, some of my earliest tensions, again, what moving me out of that perspective was, as I broaden my understanding of the church worldwide, I go, but there are a lot of people that are suffering who are believers right now. You know, they're, they're, who's lighting how does this play in a place where there's uh, genuine persecution and genuine loss of life over faith in other parts? I mean, how does this resonate with that idea that no, we, we, you know, God would never let us suffer like that? So I think there's, there's a particular American spin on that that made it, I think, grow in that. You and your wife were in Eastern Europe doing missionary work. And, right. yeah. and I'm really interested what the difference was, sort of, you know, what you heard about it over there. You mentioned you saw this kind of millennial expectation exported from America to other countries, to other cultures. Just anything you've got kind of um, contrasting the two would be interesting. Well, it, it, by the time we were in Europe, just to, for clarity, from 84 to 97, yeah, we, we moved in eight, January of 84 and came home in the summer of 97. So we were there over the whole transition from Cold War to um, the liberation of Eastern Europe. One of the things that was eye-opening for me was that there was an active work in places, particularly in places like Romania, where there was a, a genuine uh, intentional movement to create a theology of suffering. There were guys are writing about it in light of the persecutions and the limitations that were placed on them in the church in that era and that place. And so there was um, a lot of um, it was the first kind of time that I had to spend time with people who were wrestling with it at that level. There's something just ironic about you spending these 13 years in a society that has literally seen itself end and is now trying to be rebirthed 
And of course, the Soviet yeah. Union ends amidst just massive suffering and poverty and hunger and famine, whatever. And then <laughs> during those same years, just wealthy evangelicals in America are just like obsessing over which seal has just been broken based on <laughs> what's going on in Israeli politics. Or You know, there's something just so funny about that. Yeah, and even even the events as they would unfold in Eastern Europe would get tagged pretty quickly with what prophecy is this associated with the liberation of Eastern Europe. There was lots, of course, from the, from those that were in a, a strong dispensational background. The whole thing about the confederation of European states being that you know, that ten nation confederacy line of thinking that's with the Antichrist. So there's reemergence of that talk because the EU is now expanding, and how many you know it, it just never ends um, in terms of trying to take any piece of current news and, and associating or signing it some relevance to a biblical pr- prophecy. So, but the European, the people that I work with themselves didn't get so much into that. That was an American overlay into what was happening. As I recall, each allegedly fulfilled biblical prophecy, and there was definitely a lot of looking for it. I mean, especially with things like late great planet Earth and all of the other stuff that came along with that kind of, with that era. My perception was that, you know, all of the kind of looking for fulfilled prophecies from the Bible and interpreting scripture such that those prophecies had been fulfilled was reinforcement for the idea of the end times that it was the end times, that, you know, this was, you know, all coming to a close rapidly. And, you know, there were all kinds of s- schemes and outlines and things, of course, in very various people came up with as far as scenarios. of This is how it was going to go down. And this is how it was going to, you know, this is our, when, when and where Armageddon will take place and et cetera, et cetera. Some far more detailed than others, all of them pretty much proven wrong by history at this point. What's so interesting to me about that, though, is that reading the prophecies that way entails a kind of straight reading of the text as your interpretive move, right? So there is a circularity to it all. I don't, I don't think there's any avoiding that circularity, and that doesn't mean that it's wrong. You know what I mean? You have to have a certain view of the text to even make a prophecy map like that, and that view of the text tends to be more fundamentalist. Correct. So because of that, there's a sort of a a more fundamentalist mindset that's if you attack any literalism in scripture and question, you know, anything other than verbatim, Holy Spirit given, Holy Spirit inspired, you know, move the pen of the writers, etc. Every word is correct and preserved for us in the canon of scripture, etc., etc., etc. If you don't hold to that view, you are part of the problem, part of the Antichrist, part of, you know, the deception. So therefore you're not Orthodox and therefore you're not saved and, you know, etc. Um, do, do you see that train uh, in that order somewhat? I, I mean, for it, sure. That, that not only does that make sense to me, it sounds a lot like certain people in my own upbringing, you know, 30 years later. Right. Like 20, 30 years later and not everybody and not my parents, for instance, but people in our orbit at at Christian school and stuff like that. Yes. I mean, I recognize that argument like the back of my hand. Okay, so I'm not I'm I'm not (laughs) this is not just Steve's interpretation. I don't think so. No, I I think if you were wrong, then this podcast wouldn't have any audience. (laughs) 
Would you agree or would you have agreed with the following statement? The Bible can be understood in a straightforward way by anyone who can read it. I'd have to say, if you look at it with an open mind and not having been told things about it, I would think you would be able to get the right message out of it. Would that have been central for you in those earlier years of your faith? Like, was that a big important thing in the commune was like personal Bible study? We're not needing a bunch of scholars like... It's us right. and God. Just read, read, read Bible. your Bible, understand it, read it over and over again, and have a personal relationship with Jesus. That was like number one. <laughs> there is a group of people that support this show financially. Uh, officially, they're called patrons, but on the Facebook group, we like to call them permissionaries uh i don't remember who came up with that but that's my favorite of the names offered and those people give five dollars a month occasionally more and they get in exchange for that admittance to that uh patron only facebook group which has become such an awesome little community as well as at least two exclusive episodes per month and the most recent one that just came out a couple days ago is about the historical Jesus. This is a topic that I don't know if I have avoided it. That might be too strong a word, but I have not rushed to its arms. Let's say that way. It's a complicated topic. I am dimly aware of the kind of scholarship around this question of who was the historical Jesus of Nazareth. What can we know about him and what can't we know? Uh, It's complex. I know that people disagree quite a bit. It also uh, maybe matters a ton, and uh, it's something that I don't want to do lightly. So I used the the more open concept of the patron episodes to talk with a friend of mine who is a peer who has done a lot more reading than I have and just kind of start that conversation. So we do a little verbal processing. He also kind of walks us through his understanding of where the the quest for the historical Jesus has been and where it is today uh, and some of the big some of the big questions that get kicked around in that world uh, it's a nice long conversation about an hour and a half long we really covered a lot of ground I found it quite helpful and it helped me kind of get ready for a proper episode anyway that's the most recent of these exclusive episodes if you'd like to hear that or any of the previous ones you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Dan Koch or you have permission pod.com and click become a patron. Those links are in the show notes. There is a sliding scale if finances are rough for you right now. And given uh, COVID, the lockdown, the change in unemployment benefits, all that stuff, uh, I'm not surprised if that's the case and you don't need to feel any shame about that. If that's you, email me at you have permission podcast at gmail.com. Okay, back to the episode. So just as I did in the original End Times Anxiety four-part series, I wanted to know where my interviewees were at these days on this question of end times, rapture, is the end near, uh, where this fits in their theology. And so let's hear from them. If there is some kind of cataclysmic event, I think it'll be caused by us, not by God, and that God will be there to rescue and redeem and restore the years the locusts have eaten. I remember one of our 
older pastors years ago saying, talking about all these books written about the last days, every one of these authors claiming to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and none of them in agreement as to how things are going to happen. Well, so that's kind of, that's sort of the first impetus for this whole question is like, mm-hmm. depending on how you look at it, the, the most cynical way to look at it is literally everyone who's predicted any of this stuff has been wrong, at least right. if they've gone so far as to predict when it would, when Christ would return. So mm-hmm. there, you know, mm-hmm. uh, John Darby, who formed this theology, did believe that Israel would reform. He, he mm-hmm. was right about that. Um, but in terms of actually Christ returning, we're, we're batting zero, right? Zero. We're yeah. over a thousand or something. And so on the one hand, it's like, well, how do we motivate how so many people can believe this given the bad track record? That's one way of thinking about it. I think the Holy Spirit affecting people's hearts and minds had a big influence. I really do. Now, but, but why yeah. would it do? Why would the Holy Spirit? So this is interesting. I don't want to deny. I'm not going to deny the role of the Holy Spirit in the Jesus movement mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. all. Uh, many people that I have benefited from greatly spiritually come out of that movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it is it would be weird to say that the Holy Spirit influenced people to believe that Christ would return soon and then Christ would return. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. that seems like a jump, right? Yes. Yes. Good point. So there's something going on with the Spirit and with this movement, but then there appears to be something mistranslated or some cultural thing that is being added on because of that moment in time, or, or I don't know, something like that. How, how would you, how do you see like, that? It seems like, yeah, it seems like, and any more, gosh, the more you spend time in church and Christianity, the less you trust what people say. <laughs> so I view every visiting speaker with a, I just, I think, okay, is this really the truth? The move of the Holy Spirit, there was a lot of error, I guess you could say. And maybe some people saying this is of the Holy Spirit, where it was not. A few years ago, I read a book called Last Day's Madness. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, uh, I think I have heard of it, yeah. It chronicles works or things that have happened over the last 2,000 years and centuries where people have thought this is the end, these are the last days, and done crazy things. And my argument to people has been, hey, there have been times in the past where they had way more reasons to believe they were in the last days than we do. And that was a revelation to me. The Black Plague, the, the Bluebonic Plague, yeah. World War One, World War Two. If it's Seriously, about revival, the Great Awakenings, right? The Great Awake, the two Great Awakenings in early America. Yep. So I found out later that yeah, you know, this isn't the first time. You remember the Wilco song? Everybody, every generation thinks it's the last. Damn. Yep. That you're getting some cool points by quoting that right. Wilco song. Right. Yeah, it's called "You Never Know." I love that song. You never know. All you fat followers get fit fast Every generation thinks it's the last Thinks it's the end of the world What about today? Would you say things are getting worse in the world? Are things getting worse? I guess it depends on what world, you know, sometimes things are getting better. I mean, a lot less people die of disease than used to. There's a lot less people starving as far as I know than used to, but the other things are bad. AIDS is really terrible. In this country, opioids are really terrible. There are countries that still have slaves. So I'd have to read more to be, have, be more informative on whether, whether the world is better or worse. I think I would have to say for sure that as we get closer and closer to the time of Christ, things will definitely get bad. 
maybe maybe it's a a curve. Maybe it gets bad, it gets good, it gets bad, and it goes in waves and cycles, just like the weather. But I think things could turn really bad. How do you think about the end times today? I think we're closer to Christ's return than we were before, but I don't sit, feel the sense of urgency that it's going to happen any day. I think watching history and learning a little bit more, I, I feel that maybe more things have to happen first and maybe the world's going to get a lot worse before Christ returns. When you say we're closer, you, you don't mean simply numerically in the sense that, of course, we're closer because years have gone by. You mean in, in some kind of qualitative sense, we're closer to the type of time in which it would happen. Now, I guess it was just a, a matter of time going by. We're okay. closer. Uh, but I, I think I, we're, we're 30 closer, years later. Yet, let, me, let me say this. <laughs> yeah. We're closer, but yet we may be further. Oh, I How's like that. How's that sound? That's Back good. then, I thought it was going to be a number of years. Now I think, hey, it could literally take decades. I may not live to see it. And many people have died thinking they were in the last days and they were going to see Christ return. How do you think about the end times today? You know, as you age, you become more like, well, is Jesus coming back? And, you know, whatever, as far as the end times, or am I simply going to pass on and, you know, move into God's kingdom? And so it changes your perspective a little bit because, you know, I think in a certain sense, by contrast, the view of back in the day we've been discussing was almost sort of a shortcut exit way out of the perceived, you know, problems in the world. So now that sort of exit strategy, if you will, of the, you know, the rapture being any moment and all of that sort of thing has been tempered by age. (laughs) So now, I mean, I have moved to where I still hold a really high view of scripture and a really high view of God's sovereignty but a much, much higher view of God's grace and love for everyone uh, to the point that I'm just about, I'm not going to quite call myself a universal salvation person at this point. I I might at times, but I I, I tempered with, you know, God can do whatever God wants to do and save whoever God wants to save, view of sovereignty. I think God's aim is more than cataclysmic judgment. His aim is restoration and his kingdom come, and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I guess the most honest answer is I don't think about it a lot. It's not a front and center issue for me in terms of figuring out what the timelines are and the schemes and the the systems. If you had to put me into a category, I would be in the category of anomalous. I I still believe in in the actual return of Christ. I don't, I don't believe in all of the things that have been associated with that, that I in, the, in terms of these things we've been talking about, my eschatological emphasis now is what I would, what would used to be in my day called realized eschatology, which is what does the kingdom of God look like present in our world now? How are we incarnating kingdom values now, regardless of when Christ does or comes back? We we have been in task. That's the difference. In, that's part of my own personal evolution. There was always a sense the urgency was about evangelism because Christ might come any day, where now my urgency is on incarnating the kingdom of God because that's what our real mandate is. Uh, what does it look like for us to love our neighbor well? And it has interesting sidelines. I have some dear friends that are, for instance, very, very much involved in trying to help uh, Palestinians, and particularly Palestinian Christians who are very marginalized and, and are sometimes really kicked to the curb and all the, the stuff that's going on. And 
and how much still evangelical support for that idea of the nation of Israel, uh, right or wrong, has actually brought harm to people. And the, the tension between what is a realized eschatology of kingdom life, um, how does that run up against this strain to, to sort of support, almost trying to fight against those old theological strings because of its harm to people, real people uh, in the real world now that seem to be causing how can we support the violation of real kingdom values to love our neighbor uh, and, and under the banner of staying true to some theological perspective? So I tend to fight my battles more at that level than I do in trying to figure out theological streams of it. Does that make sense? It does. That's great. As I was talking with Sally about her upbringing, in a church where this end times theology was so present and so central, I could not help but think of so many of the people I interviewed back on those end times anxiety episodes who also grew up in this thick sort of end times humidity. And so I asked her a series of questions throughout our interview to see how similar it was to those experiences. So those of you who have listened to that, um, that series of episodes you might recognize a lot of what you hear from Sally. I'm going to ask you about a few things that came up really commonly in my interviews with people 20 to 45 about what they were raised with and see which of them resonates with you. A common relationship is the real motivator here is heaven and hell. And what the rapture does, what what Christ's imminent return does is just sort of push forward the clock on that to make the heaven or hell binary switch more present. So if you're a teenager, you're not really thinking you're going to die anytime soon, and you're mm-hmm. probably right about that. But if Christ could come any minute, well, then mm-hmm. the switch will be flipped sooner. And so you do need mm-hmm. to think about it. Does that yeah. resonate? Absolutely. We were taught that going to movies on Sunday was sinful. I remember the first time I did that, I was a senior in high school, and I sat there the entire time and thought, what if Christ comes back today and I'm in a movie theater? Here's another one. What I would maybe call a culture of self-doubt was strongly encouraged because the heart is deceitful, the human is sinful, and so you might think that you have experienced something or you might have these warm feelings toward this non-believing friend or whatever, but that is probably your sinful nature or the devil tempting you. And you should actually really doubt that stuff and rather cling to the certainties of the word of God. Does that resonate? Absolutely. And I would say I am just getting out of that, just realizing this month that logic is only one of the ways of being. And logic doesn't always speak to the heart. So I wasn't raised that way, but that that line of thinking has a lot of power for kids with anxious temperaments. Of course, of course. I don't think I had an anxious temperament, and yet it was the most unsettling thing in my life. The one thing that I always feared. Did the imminence of Christ's return increase the spiritual authority of pastors and other spiritual leaders in your life in those days? They had so much authority. I can't even begin to tell you the power and authority they had. I don't know if it was increased by the possibility of the imminent return of Christ or not. It just was. 
they spoke and it was so. Rather than teaching us how to read the Bible and interpret it, they were the interpreters of faith for us. And they condemned what they wanted to condemn. And a big thing they condemned was associating with the other. Having a friend who wasn't a believer was only okay if you were witnessing and bringing that person to church. Otherwise, it was contaminating. They spoke out against popular culture. They called people to the front of the church to condemn behavior. I found it very frightening and upsetting and (sighs) horrifying. I think what I remember most about that time is that sense of fear of uh, what if I do the wrong thing? What if I get the mark of the beast? What if I can't go to heaven? Even more than having to endure the tribulation, it was what if I can't go to heaven? Yeah, I think that the heaven-hell binary is has to be kind of the primary motivator. And the, the end-time stuff mm-hmm. is, a, is an engine for that, is a, you know, is, yeah. directs you back to that, basically. I think so, too. Yeah, because the emphasis was on the moment of salvation, not on your continuing walk with God and growing into being more like Christ. Something that's interesting is people's stories around this really differed based on their soteriology, based on how they believed their salvation was seen in God's eyes. So people who had a once saved, always saved Mm -hmm. sort of attitude would only get anxious about the end times as I did if they had an anxious temperament. But Mm -hmm. other people who did not have an anxious temperament, uh, like my friend Jim Stump, who's at BioLogos, he had a not once saved, always saved theology. So he was a lot more worried about it in an organic kind of a way because he could be out of God's favor for swearing or something. And then the yeah. rapture happens. What do you do? You have any thoughts about just sort of the, the modulating difference of those different understandings of salvation? My mother grew up believing that you could lose your salvation. And she was always worried about that. The church I grew up in had more of a once saved, always saved, with all these caveats that, yes, once saved, always saved. But (laughs) the the big thing was not so much that you could lose your salvation, but that you never really had it, that you weren't really saved. And I, I do remember thinking, well, you know, am I really saved? I mean, yes, I prayed the prayer. I've been baptized. But is it genuine? Is it true? Will God recognize it? That was the big thing that if, you know, you might not really be saved. What was the role of fear Mm -hmm. in your experience of this expression of Christianity? Mm -hmm. I was in my 30s before I met the God of love because what I felt like I predominantly knew and was taught was the God of vengeance, of blood, of fear, that fear was um, necessary to keep us in line. And when I felt like I met the God of love for the first time, who loved me regardless of what I did, it was revolutionary in the most positive way. It's been it's been probably the most transformative thing in my life. I was raised, or my understanding was that God was distant and disapproving, and maybe if you did everything right— he'd love you. And then 
in my 30s, I started realizing God's reckless, overwhelming, unconditional love for us. I felt for the first time in my life that grace was there. And even if I did the wrong thing, God's grace would be sufficient for me. Just, I, I, I mean, just unbelievable. I also, I think, had freedom to start looking around at the world, at creation, and realizing that this is an example of God's love for us. This is an example, you know, this idea about common grace, grace that is given to everybody. I was like, wow, that's the God I love. How did you become convinced of that? Like, like what happened? For me, it was in grad school. I actually was looking for a graduate program, and I had an appointment. And I remember I was living in San Jose. My appointment was up in San Francisco on a Friday night. It was raining. And all day long, I thought, I'm not going. I don't want a degree in this. It's raining. Traffic's going to be horrible. I'm not going. And it was like a power greater than myself put me in my car and drove me up there. And then the professor I met with was a woman, brilliant woman, two bachelors, two masters, two PhDs, who had been raised in a strict Lutheran understanding, had come to a new understanding of God. And it was the first time in my life that I thought God not only allows us to question him, he welcomes our questions, our understanding of God can never be confined or contained to our minds and what we know. God's prodigal generosity to us extends to everybody. It was the start of a real change for me. At the same time, I started attending a Lutheran church. You know, I think often Lutheranism, people, you know, you say that and people think, oh, strict. Stodgy, you know, frozen Minnesotans. Yeah. Yeah, non-emotional. They were involved in the community. They were feeding people. They were embracing people. I found it, oh, just a wonderful, a wonderful place to be at that time. I have a lot of criticisms, frankly, with... I don't know, the, the main, the mainstream uh, boomer contingent of the evangelical Christianity with which I was raised. But one thing that these interviews helped me understand was the profound original experience uh, around that early Jesus movement and the, the culture of the 1970s, the early 70s in Christianity in America and Protestant, you know, evangelical Protestantism. It was something special, uh, frankly. Uh, I've watched a documentary about it and I conducted these interviews and I wish I could have experienced it. Um, of course, now I know the kind of excesses that it led to, but that does not mean that the original experience that these four interviewees and millions like them had were not valuable. And I thought it would be good rather than ending on a note of criticism here to end on, uh, maybe some well-earned nostalgia for a genuine experience. So that's how we're going to wrap things up today. What we were experiencing in the Jesus Movement era felt like a bona fide 
experiential relationship with Jesus Christ. I can still see be standing in a, in a crowd of 2,000 college students in 1971-72 New Year's Eve at a Campus Crusade conference, and you're singing all this music, and and, and it had a lot of that eschatological uh, rapture type flavor to it, and just the amount of energy and fervor there was in that. And it was, I have sort of, I don't have a nostalgia for the theology of it. I do think there was something special about the focused energy of caring about important things and eternal things. you guys putting up with some of the kind of fragmented nature of some of these clips that is not josh gilbert's fault my excellent editor who edited these clips that would be on me trying to learn how to put these more complicated episodes together so thank you to josh for his work he is available for additional podcast editing and his email is in the show notes not much else to say here except for thanks for uh, wading through a little bit of an experiment here with this two-part episode, and especially those of you who also listened to the End Times Anxiety ones back in the late winter, early spring. We'll see you guys next week for another episode. <laughs>